Hello, and thanks for listening to the American Cancer Society's Theory Lab podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I work with our grantees here, and we spoke with one of them, Dr. Kristen Eckel-Mahan. She's an assistant professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Susanna, that being Dr. Susanna Greer, why'd you want to speak with her? <laughs> hey, Joe. Good morning. I wanted to talk to Kristen because I, I know enough to be dangerous about liver cancer. So I know it's on the rise. I know it's often unsymptomatic and diagnosed um, frequently late when treatment options are limited. So thinking about the origins of liver cancer and from both a prevention and early detection standpoint are really important. And her area of research, I mean, to be honest with you, it is cool. She studies the circadian rhythm and how circadian rhythms are relevant to liver cancer, potentially beyond that, but certainly to liver cancer. And a lot of that is linked to high fat diet. Uh, so, so interesting. And we, in our discussion, get all the way to talking about uh, potential therapeutic interventions. I, I think you're going to love what she has to say. Right on. Well, let's get into it. Thanks, Susanna. Absolutely. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? Good. How are you? I am great. I'm super excited to talk to you. You've been up to some really amazing work recently, so I think we're <laughs> going to have a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. All right. Well, let's let's dive in. I think just to help level set and get us all on the same page, I know that your research focuses on uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. Is it okay just to call that liver cancer? That's fine. The majority of cases in the clinic are hepatocellular carcinoma, the, the majority of liver uh, cancers, that is. Okay. Well, just for the, the sake of our podcast today and keeping us all on the same page, we'll go with liver cancer. So I, before we kind of jump into exactly what you're doing, would you help us then to understand maybe a little bit about the incidence rate of liver cancer in the United States? And are there changes that we should be aware of in that incidence rate? Yes. So um, the cancer incidence, the incidence of HCC is on the rise. And um, it's rather alarming because we think it's due to uh, risk factors that weren't previously appreciated. But currently, there's approximately 27,000 deaths per year in the U.S. as a result of liver cancer. And it's increasing in both men and women. It, it was previously associated, I mean, men got liver cancer more frequently than women but it's increasing in both men and women right now in the U.S. Okay, well that, so that's not great. Um, so if the incidence rate is increasing, maybe you could tell us a little bit about when then is liver cancer usually diagnosed? Yeah, so liver cancer is often unsymptomatic. So patients can have a tumor for many years and not be aware of it. And unfortunately, by the time they do have symptoms and end up at the clinic, sometimes these tumors are um, too large for surgical resection. And unfortunately, um, you know, some patients are not eligible for liver transplants, but many are, and that's a, that's a uh, tractable solution. However, um, as you can imagine, with um, liver disease on the rise, uh, the demand for um, donor livers um, out, you know, outpaces the supply. So it's, it's a deadly disease, often because it's found too late. Okay, so it sounds like there's some pretty significant treatment obstacles, and this is no small challenge because, as you said, the incidence rate is on the incline. So right. could you help us understand why that might be the case? Are there risk factors that are typically associated with liver cancer? 
Yeah, there are risk factors. So um, hepatitis um, C virus and hepatitis B virus um, historically have been the prominent drivers of HCC. And stages of liver disease um, progress from, you know, fibrosis to cirrhosis and ultimately um, hepatocellular carcinoma in the case of um, viral infections typically. But um, interestingly enough, fatty liver seems to be a risk factor, and we think we're seeing more um, HCC in the clinic because of the high incidence of fatty liver. Um, now, I shouldn't talk about risk factors without talking about alcohol abuse. Of course, excess alcohol is thought to, over time, produce liver damage and significantly increase the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma as well. Okay, interesting. So there is an infectious link to yes. liver cancer. And then there's also what sounds like more of a link that's involved to lifestyle. So, and right. you mentioned alcohol abuse. Um, so is there a tie between lifestyle issues and fatty liver? I, I, I think that's something that most of our listeners may not be familiar with. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is fatty liver disease? Right. So fatty liver um, simply refers to excess um, fat accumulation in the liver. Of course, our liver does a lot of things. It um, metabolizes, um, you know, various um, drugs. It um, stores glycogen. It produces glucose for the brain during periods of fasting. So the, the liver does a lot of things for us. Um, and Ultimately, it's not supposed to be a fat-storing organ. You know, we have adipose tissue to store fat, but the liver is not supposed to be storing um, a large amount of fat anyway. And in the case of um, high-fat diet um, and um, obesity, you have these extra lipids circulating around, right? And so uh, organs such as muscle or liver start taking up these excess lipids. And over time, what we're seeing is that that actually um, can damage the liver, and the liver is not as functional as it used to be. It can become fibrotic, uh, which, of course, as I said, there are stages of liver disease that uh, you see generally in patients before HCC. And fatty liver is one of the first ones, but it can lead to um, more permanent damage. Oh, so that's really interesting. So you, you began this conversation by reminding us that liver cancer is on the rise. It's actually pretty alarming. Mm -hmm. And you correlated that to a, a couple of different risk factors. Um, we talked just a little bit about an infectious risk factor. And also, you led us into lifestyle issues and quickly brought us to the understanding that the liver is crucial. We have to mm -hmm. have it. It has a lot of jobs. And right. as we have a an increased, um, I guess, fat quantity in our diet, that that fat has to go somewhere. And one of those places is the liver. So right. am I right so far? That's correct. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So if that's the case, then one of the things that you've published on recently is that this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which I think is what you've just explained to us, Right. may not only contribute to liver cancer, but could explain the rising incidence of a pretty aggressive form of liver cancer. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that's correct. Um, we think that liver cancer is on the rise in the U.S., and it's not just the U.S., um, other countries 
countries where you see you know, um, growing obesity and type 2 diabetes, um, you see increased rates as well. Um, but we think that you're, we're seeing these increased rates because of the um, resident fatty liver. And again, you know, over the long term, um, you know, this can lead to fibrosis and um, sort of set the stage for increased HCC. The mechanisms behind this aren't really clear, but it's an area of really, um, you know, intense focus right now, just because it seems that obesity is not going away, you know, in the near future anyway. So I think it's going to be a continuing problem for years to come. All right. So we've had kind of a bad news podcast so far. So. Yeah, right. I know. It's not very positive. <laughs> That's okay. We're going to make a turn. So we so increase rates of liver cancer, we think there is a correlation to increased rates of fatty liver, and we don't really understand all the reasons why, but we know obesity is a contributing factor. So bad news part. Good news right. is that you have had some really, really impressive data recently showing that there may be a role for our Carcadian clock and actually maybe slowing down or reversing the growth of liver cancer. So we're going to move into the good news segment of the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's good with me. <laughs> but I, I think before we jump into that, um, okay, maybe help us understand what is our Carcadian clock? So our Circadian clock is a endogenous or internal 24-hour timekeeping system. And it's synchronized with our external environment, the 24-hour light-dark cycle. And what's really fascinating about the um, circadian clock is that it's resident in basically all our cells. And these 24-hour rhythms in cells uh, occur at the level of cellular metabolism, at the level of gene expression. So, you know, when your DNA is made into RNA and functional proteins, there, there are very few cellular pathways that are not um, rhythmic or have not been shown to be rhythmic by um, studies. So um, you've got this really exquisite 24-hour timekeeping system in your cells, and those cells work together over the course of the, the um, day-night cycle to promote tissue-specific functions. And while your brain clock, um, which is located in your hypothalamus, entrains our body to this 24-hour light-dark cycle around us, our peripheral clocks, like the liver and a couple other peripheral organs, respond to food cues. And this might sound surprising, but if you changed, studies indicate that if you change your food intake patterns such that you're only eating at night, for example, your peripheral clocks start paying attention to that 24-hour cycle instead of the light-dark cycle. Um, so, and that produces what we, what we refer to as a sort of misalignment of your circadian clocks between the brain and the peripheral system. And this is bad in terms of energy balance and um, there are uh, large epidemiological studies which show that night shift workers and rotating shift workers who have sort of a chronic circadian misalignment have an increased risk for type 2 diabetes, for cardiovascular disorders, uh, for weight gain, uh, et cetera. So, so this internal timekeeping system is really important for our health. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. And also maybe not great news. <laughs> For my late night ice cream habit. 
but we'll, we'll, we'll loop back to that. So what you shared with us, so this is fascinating. So we have a, a clock, our, a circadian clock in every cell. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a, that is responsible for kind of a day-night function. So things that right. need to happen during the day, things that need to happen during the night. Right. Um, and then there is a, would you say a different form of this clock that is present in the cells and tissues like the liver, which are going to respond not so much to whether it's light or dark outside, but to what's going on maybe in our digestive system, it sounds like. Right, exactly. So there are a lot of um, metabolic enzymes that show very robust 24-hour expression patterns in the liver. And the liver is really fun to study from a circadian context because so many processes and, um, and enzymes are highly rhythmic in the liver. And, and so it's because the liver is so important, right, in all these things that we can, I guess, mess up, right? We can get this circadian clock that's happening in the liver kind of out of tune and out of touch with the rest of our body. Um, Right. If that's the case, why do you think the circadian clock plays a role in liver cancer? Help us understand that. Well, yeah. I mean, not a lot of work has been done in this area, but there was a fascinating study that came out um, a couple years ago in cancer cell. And they showed that simply jet-lagging a mouse, so this was a rodent study, jet-lagging a mouse eight hours a week for a pr- very prolonged period of time increased um, HCC in these rodents compared to the control. And this, this group also used a number of circadian mutant models and found the same thing, that these livers were prone to HCC, which is, is, is really fascinating <clears throat> and a bit surprising, but simply, simply exposing them to this chronic jet-lag caused uh, ectopic um, fat deposition in the liver, just as we were talking about before, it caused fatty liver and over time caused these livers to acquire tumors. And it still took a long time, but they obviously were getting tumors much earlier than the wild trolls that were on the normal 24-hour cycle uh, throughout life. So my lab has been really interested in why this happens and why um, you get fatty liver um, in the context of circadian disruption. And we focused, we kind of narrowed in on a particular protein um, that we found has really pronounced circadian function in the liver. So my, our last couple studies have really focused on um, the importance of this protein uh, throughout the circadian cycle. All right. Well, tell us a little bit more then about this protein. Why, why did you focus on it and what do you think it does? Well, yeah, so this protein, um, I'll, it's called hepatocyte nuclear factor 4, but I'll just call it HNF4. Um, there's okay. a couple isoforms. But this protein is um, necessary for liver cell formation, so it drives liver cell fate, uh, essentially. And there are a couple isoforms, as I mentioned, a couple types of this protein, one of which is expressed during um, liver development when you need proliferation, right? And then uh, once the liver is fully developed, that particular form of the protein gets shut off completely. And you have this other uh, isoform or um, type of HNF4. And that HNF4, we find, is a transcription factor, which means it sits down at DNA and it promotes expression of your of a, a number of genes thousands actually it, it's it's a very ubiquitous protein in liver cells 
And what's really fascinating about it, which we didn't know before a couple of years ago, is that it actually sits um, at some of the genes that are responsible for cell proliferation, mm-hmm. um, like a number of the cyclin genes. Um, it sits there, and it, it actually promotes a circadian repression of these genes. And if you get rid of this protein, if you inhibit it, these cyclins and pro-growth um, and division genes start oscillating over the circadian cycle in a very pronounced way. And this particular protein had been touted as a tumor suppressor before, uh, but we got excited when we saw this circadian repression because we thought, well, maybe it functions as a tumor suppressor based on this 24-hour activity it has. Um, Now, you might be wondering about the relevance in terms of um, human liver biology. The really fascinating thing, but the scary thing, is that we know that prolonged high-fat diet feeding in rodent models decreases the amount of this protein. So as you can imagine, that means that some of these pro-growth and um, uh, pro-division genes are getting turned on in a circadian way simply by high-fat feeding. And as you can imagine, that means, you know, the liver is not normal and it's, um, you know, we see that if you um, decrease the levels of this protein long term, uh, you promote hepatocellular carcinoma in the long term. All right. So let me make sure I understand. So way back to my naughty (laughs) ice cream habit. (laughs) So more fat would mean a suppression, so less of this protein, which turns out to be really important, and you call this protein HNF4. So less, more fat equals potentially less of this protein. And this protein, when there's less of it around, there could be a response in a cell of a change in that cell's circadian clock because this protein is really important for turning on, for making all these other proteins do their job. And Mm -hmm. if it's not around, the other proteins, which have pretty important roles to play in how liver cells divide, you said proliferate, but how cells divide, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, all that control is lost, or at least is changed. Is that right? Exactly. That's correct. So in some cases, um, you completely lose this protein. But in other cases, the other isoform, the other type of the protein that I described earlier as being important during liver development, that gets turned back on. And it drives the tumor suppressive one or the, the, the protective form out of the nucleus where it's supposed to be functioning. So, which, as I said, means that all those um, pro-growth and cell, you know, pro-mitotic genes are getting turned on because, um, you know, the protective form of HNF4 is no longer in the nucleus, or at least not to the same extent. Hmm, what a mess. So (laughs) there is a direct correlation between the high-fat diet and the, you would say, at least the presence of, and you did say there are multiple different types of this protein, but Mm -hmm. so that we don't get down to the nitty-gritty the less we have of, of the form of HNF4 that you predominantly studied, the worse we are off when we think about maybe risk factors for liver cells getting a little crazy and starting to divide when they shouldn't. Exactly. 
And then on top of that, you said that there is another form, kind of a competitor of HNF4, mm -hmm. which was around earlier in cell development, which is a good thing, but it shouldn't mm -hmm. be around now. And then all of a sudden, right. when you have this high fat diet, it may come back and actually kick our good protein out of the nucleus so that it can't suppress um, exactly. all of these these uh, different genes that are involved in cell division. Ugh. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So this is a problem. Okay. Yeah. So I guess this the leads me to ask, um, as we try to again highlight some positive aspects of what you're doing, which are pretty <laughs> incredible, is are, are there ways we can fix this? Right? Are there compounds that we could use maybe to target? this protein or others like it that adjust this circadian rhythm um, that we could think about as being therapeutic for liver cancer? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's where the hope lies. And I, I didn't discuss previously, but we know when um, the protective form of um, HNF4 is decreased and the other form turned on by high-fat diet, um, that the clock starts doing different things, and the one of the key clock proteins gets turned off by this um, sort of bad form of HNF4. And so in our studies, we've been using um, uh, some circadian activators that can increase um, this particular protein, and we've been doing this both pharmacologically and genetically. And we see in these cancer cells where they've shut down the circadian clock that if you force it to turn back on and force this protein that's been shut down, the circadian clock protein that's been shut down to be re-expressed, these cells undergo um, cell death and you basically can prevent tumor uh, growth in rodent models. And we're excited about this because the particular pharmacological activator that we're using is something that's actually um, present in orange peels. It's called nobilitin, and um, there's a, a number of circadian biologists sort of investigating this molecule for um, its metabolic benefits. Hmm. But what we're really hoping is that, yes, there may be um, certain types of HCC uh, that have, well, we know in humans there are certain HCCs that show this um, profile of the clock being shut down. And um, our hope is that maybe pharmacological activators of the clock might be tractable therapies. So, yeah, that's our hope, that by altering the circadian system um, in these cells, there might be um, some hope in terms of slowing growth or even preventing as preventative measures in the first place for high-risk patients. Mm, that's fascinating. So... If it turns out it is the clock, because I guess it isn't always, but if it turns out it is that circadian clock that's uh, either out of alignment or isn't working, that we do have a chance then in those particular liver tumors of changing that situation um, with right. some therapeutic intervention. Right. All right. So one of the questions that we get all the time as scientists is, you know, cancer in mice is not the same thing as cancer in humans. So, right. but it's where it starts. Well, actually, it's not where it starts. It's a midpoint of where it starts. It starts much earlier than that in test tubes. But mm -hmm. so what would be your goal or what, what could you see in the next one year or five years of how we might translate what I think is some pretty incredible research that you're doing in animal models to the clinic? Yeah, so I think in terms of prevention, I think... Um, Particularly, I mean, for those of us that are healthy, I think maintaining our circadian cycle 
and adhering to our environment is really important. We know it's important for so many different tissues, but in the liver, it's really important in keeping it sort of fat-free and doing its normal job. But I think, you know, further on down the road in the case of liver damage, I think still an adherence as much as possible to a good 24-hour rhythm is really important. Chronotherapy is something that I think is vastly understudied, but we really hope will be translated more to the clinic in the next, you know, five to 10 years at a minimum. Some drugs have better efficacy and lower toxicity if you take them at certain times. But there are so many um, drugs, you know, chemotherapy agents included, that are not well studied from a time of day perspective. And so many of their target enzymes have these really robust 24-hour rhythms. And so I think chronotherapy is something that really needs to be considered from a clinical standpoint. And unfortunately for liver cancers, uh, there are not very many pharmacological agents currently that are highly successful. So, you know, that limits the potential for, you know, adequate chronotherapy, obviously. But one thing we really hope is that for all cancers, you know, these 24-hour rhythms themselves are taken into account in terms of treatment. Wow. So it sounds like we're just at the tip of the iceberg, that where you started has led you to an unexpected place in understanding the impact of circadian rhythms on liver cancer, but which could be extrapolated potentially to other cancers and certainly to other treatments where we think about things like your age and your weight mm-hmm. um, and your sex when we are thinking about doses. And, and it sounds like this is a whole other area that's largely unexplored, which um, sounds like is, is pretty essential. Right, exactly. It's, I think it's really essential. And, um, you know, you talked about sex being a factor that we think about, and it's true, we do. Um, and it's, it's very important. But in terms of fatty liver disease, um, again, it seems to be increasing risk in both men and women. Um, but, you know, we all have these 24-hour rhythms. Men, women, you know, children, we, we all have, you know, even though our sort of chronotype can fluctuate throughout life a little bit, we all have these rhythms. And sometimes I think they get ignored in the process of um, pharmacology and, um, you know, drug development. And why do you think that's the case? You know, I think it's a good question. I don't really know why that's the case. I just think part of it has to do with there's sort of relatively recent attention, relatively recent attention given to them by scientists. I think, you know, the clock gene was, the clock gene was cloned in what, the 80s, so it's relatively recent in terms of, um, you know, development. We've, you know, in the last, say, 10 to 15 years, finally recognized the importance of these rhythms. So I think, you know, we just have a little catching up to do in terms of the um, ramifications of these rhythms in various cell types and organs. So, yeah, I think it just has to do with, you know, the length of time we've been studying the clock. Well, I'm awfully glad you're in this space. What an exciting and impactful area to be in. It sounds like we have a tremendous amount to learn, but you've contributed a lot and we're looking forward to more great things. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you, Susanna. It's, yeah, we're really hoping that this, you know, can be translated to the clinic in years to come and um, really help people that, you know, have these HNF4 deficient tumors. 
So one last question before I let you go and get back to what you're supposed to be doing in the lab. <laughs> well, uh, many of our listeners are either cancer patients or their caregivers. Uh, is there a particular message that you would like to share with these folks? Yeah, so I I have to say I've been on that side somewhat. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was only 37, and it was very metastatic, so she ended up passing um, of it a few years later. So I've been on that side, and I, I think it can feel like the science is so incremental and slow, but um, it is moving us forward. And I think the more we understand about particular tumors and tumor types, we are moving towards more specialized treatment options. But just from a more practical perspective, I think as a caregiver or if you're a patient, no matter what stage of the disease, really paying attention to your 24-hour rhythms is a good thing. We know it's important for so many organs. So whether you're trying to deal with, you know, chemotherapy or whatever, we, we know that a good 24-hour sleep-wake cycle is going to help all your organs function better. So yeah, I think I just have to say, pay attention to that and don't undervalue it. Um, it's really important. Well, thank you, Kristen. I think that I, many of us, unfortunately, can relate to your motivation. I'm so sorry about the loss of your mom. Um, and it's a great reminder, not only of the tremendous basic science that you're doing, but of a way that despite us not really understanding all the implications, you've given us some really good tools that all of us can use, either from a prevention standpoint or as we think about our cancer treatments. Uh, listen to our bodies. Maybe maybe don't right. stay awake watching those Netflix shows and right. uh, do all the things that we know we're supposed to be doing. But it sounds like, uh, in this case, our, our gut knowledge of the fact that that 24-hour cycle is important may really pay off. Right. Absolutely. All right. We'll let you get back to it. Thanks, Kristen. Have a great rest of your day. Susanna, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.